right, you guys can have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Um, I, uh, I want to ask you a question. Um, ha- have you ever driven through uh, West Texas before? Ra- raise a hand if you've driven through West Texas. Okay, most of the room. Well, most of the room understands what that drive is. It's not much to look at, not much to do. It's pretty boring. Um, Rachel and I lived in New Mexico, uh, in the southern tip of New Mexico, in a little town called Las Cruces. Uh, actually, it was the second biggest town, had 200,000 people, um, which is what Arlington, I think, has. So just kind of a, a scale idea, just a small little city that we lived in, in Las Cruces. And we would drive from Las Cruces back to Texas to visit my parents and her parents. And who, who's ever been to El Paso? Who's driven to El Paso before? Oh, Letty's hand shot right up, yeah. Um, if you've driven to El Paso, you know that that drive is uh, insufferably long. It's about, what, 9 hours, 10 hours, 11 hours, depending on how many bathroom breaks you have to take and how many kids you have in the car, right? Um, when we would drive from Las Cruces back here to the Metroplex, we'd spend a half hour in New Mexico, and the rest of it was all in Texas. Well, because everything's bigger and better. But on our, on our drive through West Texas, you know that the landscape is dotted with really wonderful things to look at, like dirt devils. Um, that's about it. <laughs> Oil field pump jacks and a lot of road signs. That's really what your drive consists of. Now, one of my least favorite reminders about the length of this boring drive were those city distance signs. You know the ones where like, it tells you what town is coming up next and it gives you maybe a list of two or three towns and, and how many miles you have until you hit that town? Well, on the way out of El Paso, on our way from Las Cruces to the Metroplex, there'd be one sign in particular. It would tell us the next town, which I really appreciated, and the next one coming up that was a little further away. But for some reason, it would also include Dallas. Dallas was 635 miles away. I don't know that I needed to be... (laughs) updated on the the distance of that town. It was just a a frustrating reminder that I had another eight and a half hours or nine hours in the car through my favorite place of all, West Texas. Now, I don't think the sign was trying to communicate frustration to or annoyance to a driver, right? I I think it's it's letting the driver know what's to come and what to expect. I mean, if I had made a a turn south instead of a turn east on I-20, then my road signs would have been pointing me towards Houston or San Antonio or something much further south than where I was wanting to head, which was the Metroplex. So they confirmed the correct route. They helped me know when and where to get gas, how long until I can use the restroom, and how long I still have to travel. Now, I think the New Testament operates a lot like those signs. It gives details about how to live in light of the new covenant. Now, remember that the new covenant is the new agreement that was cut with Jesus' own body and blood. He secured heart transformation through the forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross. Now, he creates a new, brand new, unique thing, and now the terms by which I relate to God are not fixed around a law code. Who's ever read um, Leviticus before. Anybody read it all the way through? You guys are brave. Good job, by the way. You get a gold star at the end of service. Uh, 
if you've read through Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or any of those, you'll, you'll know that scattered throughout the story of how Israel became a nation is a bunch of law codes. And an ancient uh, rabbi numbered up all of the do's and the don'ts, and there's about 613 of them. And those were the uh, terms by which the nation of Israel, the ethnic Jews, the family of Abraham, different ways to describe the same people, how they related to God. But now because of Jesus and in light of his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, the new covenant creates new terms by which we relate to God. I no longer have to obey a set of rules and laws in order to have a relationship. Instead, my relationship with God is based upon my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And that is very, very good news because what the Old Testament shows us time and time and time again is that nobody could fulfill the law. Nobody. And even the best of them, like King David, did horrible stuff. And that's what we're supposed to understand as we read and go through our Old Testament. We are looking for someone to save us because we cannot do it. Moses, even, we've talked about this in our maybe three weeks ago now or four weeks ago now in our covenant series. Even Moses, the one who got the law from God and shared it with the Israelite people, even he realized only a few years later after the law was given to him that what we need, what humanity needs, is not just a law code that we can follow or not, but brand new circumcised hearts. Not circumcision in the flesh, because that doesn't actually make you holy or right or new or have a great relationship with God. That's just an outward physical sign. What we need instead is an inward sign where God's spirit creates in us a brand new heart. And that's what Jesus accomplishes through the new covenant. So then the new covenant becomes an advanced signal about what's coming while informing us about right now. It is both active and at work in people who have placed their faith in Jesus while pointing towards the future reality of a fully completed new creation. Okay, here's your second gold star. Who's read the entire book of Revelation? Wow, a few more. Good job. You guys get us a gold star. I appreciate it today. Okay, Revelation is the end of the story. And whatever your viewpoint is of Revelation, the ultimate aim of the book is to remind Christians throughout all of history who's in control. God. God's in control. Jesus is in control. And he is the true king of the world. And he will return one day. We won't fly off to heaven. That's not, that's not what Revelation teaches. Revelation instead teaches that Jesus will come back and renew and recreate, giving us a new heaven and a new earth where we, in brand new bodies, just like what Jesus showed us in his own resurrection, in brand new bodies, we will exist and be in his presence. So we're waiting for that moment, and what the new covenant is pointing towards is that future reality. And without the covenantal framework that we've examined the past several weeks, the Bible and your role in that epic story about God and what he's doing in the world, it just won't make sense. And I might be tempted to read the Bible incorrectly, view certain passages out of context, or misunderstand 
and then misapply what parts of the Bible are trying to communicate if I don't understand which covenant I am reading in. It's vitally important that we understand this covenantal framework, and it's vitally important that we understand the new covenant because God's story is still unfolding. Have we reached Revelation yet? Some of y'all in the room might say, yes, amen. Okay, I don't know. I'm just saying we haven't reached the final thing in Revelation where Jesus has returned. And so not everything is completed yet. And so in the in-between time from when Jesus came first to die as a sacrifice for our sins until the time that he returns, the story of the Bible is unfolding. It's still progressing forward. It's still happening within new covenant people. And new covenant people are you and I. Those who have brand new, renewed hearts. We have circumcised hearts that are able uh, to have a relationship with God, not based upon law codes, but based upon sincerity and truth. So as new covenant people, we aren't passive recipients of God's grace through Jesus, but active participants in the story of God in the world. I think it's important to note that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, it is. It is absolutely that. But it accomplished so much more than just the way that you would have a right relationship with God. It went further than only a personal relational repair. It was a covenant sacrifice. It started something new. It creates something brand new and unique. Jesus, like the covenant sacrifices of the Old Testament, formalized this new agreement that God was making with his people. Namely, that you don't have to follow this law. Now you have to follow this person, Jesus Christ. And Paul takes pains to describe this throughout the New Testament, but particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the what? This keeps showing up. This word shows up all over your Bible, and unless you understand this framework, a lot of your Bible won't make sense. So Paul is right out of the gate in this passage trying to show us that there is a distinction between Israel those who were circumcised, and Gentiles, those who were uncircumcised. And notice his little parentheses, which is done in the body by human hands. He's trying to point out that that is not as good as what the prophets envisioned, which was a circumcised heart. And uh, verse 12 again, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, what? The law. What did he set aside? The law. So again, if I come to the Bible and read it as a flat, even story all the way across without any dynamics in what's occurring, If I don't recognize that Jesus did something brand new, then I might read a commandment in the Old Testament and say, that has immediate application for myself right now. 
How many of you are wearing a poly cotton blend this morning? Then according to that interpretive lens of the Bible, you are sinning. And not only you are nullifying your relationship with God and now you need to bring a lamb to church and I will sacrifice it for you here on the altar this morning. do, Do any of us operate that way? No, of course not, because Christ set aside the law in his body. He set it aside. It doesn't mean it's not scripture. It's 100% scripture. It's still authoritative. We gain wisdom. We learn things as we read the law. We know about God and what he was aiming to do throughout the world through the Israelites as we read the law, but it does not have immediate application for where I live right now. My immediate application is the new covenant, and I'm told to love God and who else? And my neighbor. That's my law. My law in the New Testament now is that I love God and love my neighbor. That's what Jesus says sums up the entire Old Testament law. If you can love God and love your neighbor, you can fulfill the law, and that's exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. Because if I love God and love my neighbor, I won't break the commands that God has set in place anyways. That's the whole point. Love is a greater law. See, the spirit of the law is better than the letter of the law. The letter of the law was binding, whereas the spirit of the law is freedom, Paul says elsewhere. And so he set aside the law in his flesh, verse 15, with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new who? Humanity, one new humanity. This is, this is interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll keep reading and we'll, we'll unpack this. Out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Words like household should flash at you. What's the, what's the household of faith in the Old Testament? What, what's the guy's name that started that? Say it again. Abraham. That's exactly right. The household of faith that God chose was Abraham's family. That is the Israelite nation. And what Paul is here saying is that the two groups, the Gentiles and the Jews, are now one new thing. They're special. They're unique. They're holy, even. So now we're not uh, uh, strangers or foreigners, but rather fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul's covenantal framework for Christ's death is the basis for what we now call the church. The church joins Israel's story and now followers of Christ's story together in the person and hinge point of Jesus. So now my story becomes, I adopt in a sense, or I'm adopted into in a sense, the story of Israel. 
I'm adopted into the story that God is telling in the world and through humanity. So now I'm a part of this thing, but I'm distinct. I'm still different. I'm not Israel. Um, I, I'm, I'm still a Gentile, technically. But I'm brought into the family of Israel, but I'm not the same thing. I'm something distinct and unique and different. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to describe to us in this idea of one new humanity. I'm not that Old Testament people. I am a part of the church. So Paul clearly shows that at one time the Jews were the only covenantal people, the only ones who were allowed in, but now through Christ the new covenant opens up the family of God to anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. And this is a big deal. It's why you're allowed in. Is anybody in here an ethnic Jew? I mean, maybe a couple of us, but I would imagine most of us are not. The vast majority of us are not. (laughs) Probably all of us are not. Ethnic Jews. So what Jesus accomplished on our behalf in the new covenant was not just that we would be forgiven of our sins, but rather we would be included in his story. We would be a part of his family. And we would be empowered by his spirit to be something truly unique and different. Christ accomplished peace through his sacrifice. Not only for my relationship with him, but also my relationship with everyone else. So the church becomes what God envisioned for all humanity. A renewed people living out the values of the kingdom of God as image bearers and king priests. So the church isn't just a social organization with some really nice people in it. The church is actually the crowning achievement of the new covenant. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? The Apostle Peter borrows language from the Exodus, where Israel was made into God's people with the Mosaic Covenant, to describe how the new covenant now includes all people and not just ethnic Israelites. First Peter verses, uh, ch- sorry, chapter two, verses nine and ten. But you are a what? Chosen people. A what? King priests. That's what royal means, by the way. King priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, me, us, we are what God envisioned when he spoke to Abraham. You are what God wanted when he chose Israel. You are the results of the prophet's hopes that the Spirit would renew people to become a new humanity modeled after Jesus' own life and love. Now, not you as you are, or maybe you as you were, but you as you can be in Christ. The you that he can make you into as you fulfill your vocational role as an image bearer and king priest. Now, I want to pump the brakes. I maybe made some people really nervous in here. I just talked about you a lot. (laughs) I mean, you know what I'm saying? I I just said you like 15 times. I probably went over the quota there for how much I should talk about you and I. Listen, Jesus is the point. He's the point of the whole Bible. He's the point of the whole story. The Old Testament points forward to him, and everything after the New Testament points back to him. He is the point. You and I, of course, are recipients of his grace 
and his mercy. But that doesn't mean that we are the focal point. Jesus is. However, the church is vitally important in the story of God. It's vitally important in the story of humanity and the world. It's the next iteration in what God is going to accomplish for us and us and through us. So yeah, I talked about you. I did. I think it's important. Because missing the unfolding covenantal story of the Old Testament effectively neuters your understanding of what the church is. We are the people in which the presence of God dwells. Not a localized temple that you have to go to with so-and-so regulations and commandments. Instead, we come to him freely, knowing that he listens to us and hears our prayers. This new people, the church, are progressing the story until new creation is finally consummated at Jesus' ultimate return. Now the church, like the kingdom of heaven, like the kingdom of God, which we spoke about during the summer, is the already not yet. Jesus came and preached, the kingdom of God is here. And everybody's like, okay, where? (laughs) He's like, it's right here. You're looking at him. Now, not everything has been completely made new like we see in Revelation, but the kingdom of God was announced when Jesus came. So the word that we use is the already not yet or an inaugural inaugural phase. It was an inauguration that Jesus brought. So the church, like the kingdom of heaven, is the already not yet. Kingdom of heaven is already here, but not yet fully realized. And so we are like those distant road signs which point to the final destination that lies ahead. I always knew how far Dallas was away from El Paso because that sign bugged the heck out of me. 635 miles. And there's also an awful, horrible highway called, I, I, what is it, 635 in Dallas? So like I really connected those together, you know what I'm saying? I, I knew it. I knew what the road sign said. I knew what it pointed towards. Now, we are the already because the church is made up of people who have a renewed heart, a circumcised heart. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have his gifts that help us to accomplish the aims of the great suzerain king. If you guys can remember back that far to five weeks ago when we talked about what a suzerain and a vassal king were. Suzerain is the great king, vassal kings are the lesser king, but still kings. And they do things on behalf of and for the benefit of, yes, their kingdom, but also the benefit of the suzerain, the great king. And so we have been given gifts of the spirit to accomplish the aims of our great suzerain king as we live into our vassal vocation as the image bearers of God. That happens right now. That reality is at play. You have particular gifts that I don't. And I have gifts that you don't. And we together fill in all the gaps all the way across our communities, our families, and our church. And we do our best to serve God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But see, we're also the not yet in the sense that Jesus hasn't returned, so we are not perfect. Is anybody worried to get coronavirus? I sure am. My body's not perfect. It it hasn't been resurrected yet. I'm still worried about getting sick. I still see people on my Facebook feed who get cancer. And they were healthy. They were eating all the blueberries in the world. You know what I'm saying? They were running, you know, marathons and stuff like that. They, They were healthy people. And they got cancer. Just really stinky. 
Does any of us uh, uh, live perfectly with our spouses in our homes? Yeah, of course not. Of course not. Of course we don't live perfectly in our homes with our spouses. We have fights and robust dialogues. You know what I'm saying? Of course that happens. We have a lot of things wrong with us and we still battle our desires and our flesh because we are not made perfect yet. So we're the not yet in the sense that we have not been resurrected the same way that Jesus was, but he becomes our sure hope. Exactly what his body looked like exactly the way that his body operated in the resurrection when he came back from death, that will one day be what we are like. So we are to become those distant road signs. We point to the future in the present. We tell and we model to people the true story of the world and about how they can join in and be a part of it. Paul spells it out really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what has come? It's all over your Bible, y'all. It's all over your Bible. The new covenant, the covenantal framework, the new creation, it's all over your Bible. And that's what we have become in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And while, yes, this is a description of of how we used to live versus now how we live in Christ, it's more than that. It's more than that. You are a part of the inaugural phase of new creation. You have God's spirit in you. You are a distant road sign that points towards what's really happening in the world and who really is Lord and King. So this is what we are. We are new creations, but not completely or bodily renewed. We're waiting for our resurrection. So in the meantime, the church becomes ambassadors of reconciliation. We become ambassadors of the new covenant and ambassadors of new creation. Paul goes on in this same paragraph, 1 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We, you and I, become little Christs. Christians, that's what the word means, by the way. We are Christians. We are ones in whom God makes the appeal to the world be reconciled to God by the way that we live, by the words that we speak. And this is the appeal that God is making through us to the world at the end of verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So you're the road sign pointing to the future. We are those in whom God is making his appeal to the world to be reconciled back to him. We are active participants in the story of God, humanity, and the world. We aren't passive acceptors of God's grace. 
Instead, that activates us to become active participants in his story. This is the church. This is what you and I are. We reveal Jesus to the world through our faithful witness. You remember when your mom let you out at school? And she said, you might be the only Bible somebody reads today. And she like stared you down, you know what I'm talking about? She was right. Mom was right. You, you might be the only Bible somebody reads today. You're a faithful witness to Jesus. That means that we obey Christ who told us to love God and love our neighbor. And we embody the characteristics and the values of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We do this as we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. The church then becomes a people serving, advocating for, praying for, making peace amongst, and declaring the gospel to our friends, family members, coworkers, and our neighbors. We are the hands and feet of Christ in our homes, in our communities, and beyond. We are the means by which Jesus' own values, his own love, and his own message get released into the world. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ alone, and our ultimate hope is in Christ alone. That's a really great picture. And it's really hard for me to believe that Jesus left me to be that. It's really hard for me to to accept that Jesus believes that as I'm empowered by his spirit, I can become a faithful witness in the world. And I think that's a part of the beauty of the story. He really believes that you and I, the church, new covenant people, are the hope of this world. The story of God, story of what he's doing in the world, story of what he's doing with humanity has always been shaped this way. I mean, why create in the first place if you're perfect and don't need anything at all? Because he wants to partner with humanity. Why make angels who send messages? Can't you just speak and people hear? Because he wants to partner. Why make Adam and Eve and put them in a garden and tell them you have all this stuff to do and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and I want you to extend past the garden and take my reign forward? Why do that at all? Because God wants to partner. He wants to partner with you and with I. He wants to be in our lives and he wants us to be a part of him and carry this project, this earth, our lives forward. It's always been a divine and human project. Always, always, always. So here's my question for you. What are you signaling? What would the sign of your life right now say to people? Would it point them to Jesus? Would the sign of your life point to love for God and for neighbor? Would you call yourself a faithful witness to Jesus through your actions, your thoughts, and your words? I imagine if you're like me, your answer is going to be a bit mixed up. It might sound something like this. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not always doing it. But again, this is the beauty of the new covenant, that we are forgiven. Breaking a single command doesn't nullify the grace 
that Jesus gives us. So even when I fail, God's grace has not left me. His mercy and his love has not gone from me. Those aren't the terms of the new covenant. The terms are a relationship with Jesus that's sincere and true. So when I mess up, I try my best to sincerely and in truth pursue Jesus all over again. I run back to him. I ask for forgiveness. I confess my sins. I repent from those things. I remind myself of the story that I'm living in. I am new covenant people. That's my story. So whatever other story I'm being told by, the media, my family, friends, whatever else, my own mind, whatever story I'm believing at this moment, I have to put that story away and instead remember what story I am in. I'm in God's story. I'm a part of his family. And so I remind myself of the story and then I do my best all over again to serve God. This is what our vocation is. Your life is to become increasingly more cross-shaped and Jesus-shaped. The old theological word is cruciform. You're supposed to be uh, shaped like the cross, shaped like Jesus. That means you adopt his values and characteristics, acting and thinking and living like Jesus did. But we don't just do it to pat ourselves on the back and say that we have a good Christian home with moral kids. We become more like Christ to then fulfill his mission. Cornerstone, what's our mission? <laughs> make disciples who make disciples. So then, if that's our mission, if that's our vocation, if that's how we live into our image bearing role as king priests, then we ought to be looking for opportunities to engage those around each of us to be road signs that point to the future reality that we believe in, that followers of Christ will receive new resurrection bodies and will live in a new heaven and a new earth with God in our presence forever. So we have to share that message. We have to share the gospel to tell people that, that they've sinned. We have to help people understand what sin is and let the Holy Spirit convict them, not you. You don't convict anybody. The Holy Spirit convicts hearts. So I don't shout at anybody but I do point them towards Jesus. And when I point people towards Jesus, the closer that they get to him, the more they'll realize, wow, my heart's pretty messed up. I need a new one. And that's exactly what the new covenant offers. It's exactly what a relationship with Jesus provides, is a brand new heart that enables me to love God and to love neighbor with sincerity and with truth. And so I point people towards Christ in the way that I live. But I also share the gospel. But in order to share the gospel, I first have to have a relationship. And in order to have a relationship, I have to be a generous person who loves other people and gives my time and my talents and my resources to others in order to build bridges of relationship. Without relationship, how can I share the gospel effectively? Without a core trust and a core understanding that this person loves me and wants the best for my life, how can I share the gospel effectively? So I have to build relationships with people, and that's exactly what discipleship is. It's all about relationship. So this is the church. Not an army of Christian soldiers armed to the teeth with weapons ready to dominate our enemies. 
not a political voting block that establish and enforce our values or else. Not a social club merely creating social changes. We are instead faithful witnesses armed with prayer and love. But I really like my handgun. <laughs> sand and I really like hunting and actually that's a lie I've never been hunting Justin you gonna take me sometime thank you but I do have a couple guns and I really like them but are those the weapons that I'm supposed to be armed with to change the world no what Paul tells us is that our real battle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces and so how do I fight spiritual forces with prayer and with love, with generosity, with a desire to know someone just to see them impacted for Christ, even if I'm not the one who does it. This is what the church is. We are armed with prayer and love. We are those who love their enemies, who lay down our lives for the cause of Jesus, who do not fight or lash out in violence, but instead who allow God to vindicate. We bear the burdens of others. We help the sick. We care for the poor. We champion the cause of the marginalized and oppressed. We break the barriers of hate with the instruments of love. This is what the church has been, and this is what the church ought to continue to be. This is what active participation in God's unfolding story looks like. It's completely different than what I think it ought to look like. I think it'd be much easier if we were just in power and told everybody what to do. Well, that's been tried. It's been tried. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's been tried and it doesn't work because you can't force people to have new hearts. You can only love them. You can only share the gospel with them. And God, in his time and in his way, will work on people's hearts. And they have to respond to his love. And they have to respond to the forgiveness that he's offering. And they have to respond to the great story that Jesus is telling and wants you to be a part of. This is what active participation in God's unfolding story looks like. So maybe you're like me, and as I ask those questions about what does your life signal, what kind of sign are you right now, Maybe you realize that you could be doing so much more to live this story more faithfully. Maybe some of you are just nailing it, and that's awesome. That's great. But I think for most of us, we want to be. We want to be doing well in our spiritual life. We want to be serving Christ well. We want to be sharing the gospel. But we're afraid, or we don't know how, or whatever it might be. Or we're not as actively engaged in finding those opportunities as we could be. Whatever it is, I think this morning we ought to spend some time in prayer because, again, the instruments that we use, our power doesn't stem from our ability to fight. Our power stems from our ability to pray and our ability to seek the presence of God. So this morning I want to pray a little bit and, and ask God to renew our heart's desires to participate in this great story. So here in a moment we're going to spend some time in prayer. I'll like voice out something that we can pray about. And then we'll just spend some moments in silence as you pray, whatever it is.
I'll do my best not to make it 12 seconds. That's the worst when a preacher gets up and says, I'm going to lead you in prayer and then like says two things really, really quickly and you have no time to actually pray. I'm going to do my best to hold off and give you some moments to actually pray. And then I'm going to ask God to renew our, um, our, our commitment to this mission to make disciples as a church. Finally, before we pray, don't forget to sign the church covenant. We are new covenant people who are joined together through the blood and body, not the bod of Christ, as I said earlier. If you're serious about fulfilling the mission of Christ to make disciples and impact our world for him, then do it with this group of awesome people. You don't need to look any further. We're right here. You found it. We are it. And listen, we're a little bit weird and we're a little bit messed up and all that's true. But we also love people. And we think relationships are the most important thing. And we think that following Christ is our aim. So if you need to join this church, please go sign the covenant. Sign up for the next Discover Cornerstone class. We'd love for you to be a part of this group. And as you sign that covenant, what you're signaling to us and what you're signaling to even yourself is that you're committed. You're committed to this local body. You're committed to this community. You're committed to all the things that come with that. Growing your faith as you become a disciple and then become a disciple maker. You commit to faithful giving to the church to advance the mission of Jesus. You commit to serving this church and this body. Finding a way to invest yourself in the ongoing life of this church. There's a lot of things to commit to, but when you signal that, well, maybe that's the last thing that you need to do in order to begin to faithfully apply what you know about Jesus. You've known God a long time and you've loved him, and that's awesome. But maybe you've floated around churches, or maybe you've floated around your responsibility to serve or to be a part of something somewhere else. Maybe this is the last step and your spiritual progression towards wanting to be a faithful follower and witness of Christ. You need to join this church and be a part of us. So we're going to pray for a few moments. Let's ask God to renew our heart's desire to participate in this great story. Let's bow our heads. I'll start us off. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this sweeping vision that is the church. We are the hope of the world when we're following you. We are the hope of the world because you're the hope of the world. And when we embody and live out your values, your characteristics, and your love in our lives, we become the hope that this world desperately needs. This morning I pray that we would honestly and earnestly seek you, that we would ask the Holy Spirit to enliven our desire to come after you. Spend some moments with us now as we try to seek you. Why don't you spend a moment asking God for forgiveness for anything that's been lacking in your life? Why don't you spend a moment thanking God that he does forgive you? 
and that he brings you back in to send you back out. specifically, will you renew my heart's desire? Renew my desire to serve you. Renew my desire to read my Bible and to pray. Renew my desire to serve others and live as you lived, acted as you acted, thought as you thought. from you and stems from the gifts that you've given us through the power of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would not attempt anything this week, whether it's serving somebody else or loving people at home well or whatever it might be, sharing the gospel with a coworker, whatever it could be. I pray that we would not do it in our own strength. I pray instead that we would first seek your face and seek your presence because where we find your presence is where we will be given your power. And so, Father, I I pray that this week we would be released in the power of your Spirit with renewed hearts to serve you and to love you and to be those new covenant people that you've called us to be as we serve others and as we love others well and as we share the message, the true story empower us and enliven us with your spirit this week where we need to seek forgiveness from others help us to do so with courage and with humility where we need to engage somewhere else whether it's at work or home or with our kids or whatever Lord, help us to do that with courage and humility help us to be sincere and true in our desire serve and love others this week just as you served and others loved others grant us a new vision for what our lives could be as we make disciples who make disciples help us to be on mission for you remembering what our story is that we are a part of what you're doing in this world it's as though you're making your plea to the entire world through us to be reconciled to God help us to be a reconciling force for you